0: Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston. It's an all-petroleum show today. After I do my little riff here on oil in a little bit, in a bit, we're going to bring on Alan Schaefer. He's the executive director of the Diesel Technology Forum, and he's here with a message. If hydrogen and other alternatives want to knock diesel off its perch, they've got a big challenge ahead because the diesel engine is not sitting still. And whether we're talking about diesel or oil markets, remember that you can't get oil unless you drill for it, and that's why we call the show Drilling Deep. I may have commented last week that oil had gotten a little boring. Its price really wasn't kicking around that much. That all ended over the weekend when the OPEC Plus group said it was going to cut production by 1 million barrels per day at the start of May. This came like a bolt out of the blue because the group was not meeting in any sort of regularly scheduled gathering. It communicated among its members on its own and came up with this cut out of both OPEC members and the non-OPEC part of this group that is nominally led by Russia. It appears that these oil exporters may have got a little spooked by the decline in crude prices that understandably occurred after the first suggestions of a banking crisis, when financial institutions such as Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank both failed. Brent crude is the world benchmark, and it opened up It opened up the month of March at over $84 per barrel. The banking crisis pushed it below $72 per barrel when it developed. But with the increases that came after the announcement of the OPEC Plus cuts, it has again rebounded back above $84 as I record this. But the reality is that almost all all of the increase came on that first day after the announcement. The price of crude really hasn't done much of anything since then. Whenever these cuts are announced... There's always calculations that maybe a million barrels is it really a million barrels, that they are cuts just in quotas, and that countries will produce more than what they are supposed to be cut. Nobody really accepts the million barrels a day on its face, and that seems to be what appears to have come in to happen in the market. Of course, focusing in on just the first few days may be irrelevant. And after all, the goal, the cut, is that it is going to take oil off the market for eight months. It's supposed to be May through the end of the year. And it's going to tighten supplies as a result, as OPEC expects a weakening of demand due to whatever level of recession we get. And by the way, weren't we supposed to be in recession by now? This is like waiting for Gatto uh, for this recession to arrive. What's actually been more interesting this week is the sudden strength of refined products, particularly gasoline. And the reason for that appears to be tight inventories. In the case of diesel, it certainly isn't because of strong demand. There is nothing in the data to suggest a rise in diesel demand and plenty of signs that it's softening. Just look at the state of the trucking market. But inventories are snug. Refineries in the U.S. are operating at a rate a little less than they should be for this time of year based on historical, pro, historical norms, and you see that on the data in inventories. Let's just go straight to the day's cover figure. That's the number that you get when you take inventories divided by average daily consumption and it shows you how many days of consumption would be covered solely by current inventories. In the latest inventory report, both gasoline and distillate inventories measured in days cover both declined. The distillate inventory figures are about 90% diesel, but in the case of diesel inventories, they're right now sitting at about 83% of where they should be for this time of year. Given the underwhelming reaction to the OPEC and OPEC Plus cuts, And the fact that right now product inventories are getting tighter, what has happened is that what's known as the crack spread between products and crude is getting stronger. It's already been pretty high compared to historical norms, pretty much completely because diesel is far stronger than its historical norms. But gasoline strength against Brent crude is moving up as well. That really could be seen as good news for the diesel consuming sector, As I mentioned, refinery runs are a little bit below where they should be for this time of year. If crack spreads continue to get stronger, even if it is on the back of a stronger gasoline price, that is going to incentivize running those refineries harder. And that could result in more diesel on the market as well. Gasoline markets have been historically weak for many months. Strong diesel has not been enough to overcome that when refiners figure out how hard to run. If gasoline inventories are tight enough to drive gasoline higher, it may incentivize refiners to make more gasoline at the expense of diesel. But if the overall runs are going to be higher, that is good news for diesel. Because if you're a diesel consumer, it isn't too early to be a little concerned by the fact that inventory numbers for diesel right now are way below where they should be, and it's not too early to worry about next winter. We may have had a really warm winter this time around, which spared us from any kind of natural gas or diesel crisis. That is not a guarantee for winter 2024. Okay, we're going to move on now here. And I want to mention that about a month ago, I attended Sierra Week in Houston. Sierra Week is a gigantic oil conference. It's not an equipment conference. There are no nobody out there selling rigs. It's very much an intellectual conference that used to be about oil and gas. And it still is that to a degree but it is very much now about the energy transition. And when I went there, I had a a multitude of series, not series, of sessions I could sit in on, but given the potential role of hydrogen in trucking, I decided I would pretty much spend my three days doing nothing but hydrogen. So I did. And I went to one session after another, and you can see it on Freightways.com. I wrote, I think, seven stories uh, coming out of Sierra Week, all of them, except one had a hydrogen tie. So um, at the same time, I couldn't help but think that for all the kind of giddiness and excitement that you found at the meeting about hydrogen, that, you know, the, the good old reliable diesel engine is not sitting still. It is a very tough competitor for hydrogen to to compete with. And I thought to myself, I got to have Alan Schaefer on Drilling Deep. So Alan, Alan is the executive director of the Diesel Technology Forum. I've interviewed him before. And Alan, first of all, welcome back to Drilling Deep. And number two, tell us diesel technology is not sitting still is it if hydrogen is going to take it out it's going to need to be pretty competitive right
1: that's right john thank you for uh, for having us back i think uh you know it's pretty clear we are in a uh, midst of an energy transition i think that uh you know there are lots of questions yet to be answered about how fast that takes place and at what levels and what parts of our economy and specifically in what parts of this industry and when? So um, I think that, uh, you know, today diesel is doing everything our economy demands and it's delivering everything that we need. Um, It's changing over time. We're going to see some new iterations and new requirements from the government, of course. But um, I would predict that uh, in the next decade, two decades even, that diesel is still going to be quite the dominant technology for the trucking industry.
0: I mean, really, you can almost argue that government in general is kind of throwing everything they've got at. it. And I, I won't say everything because people in the alternative fuels business would say they need to do more. But at, uh, at, at steer Week, there was so much talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, and very specifically, some pretty simple credits, and not com- particularly complex, uh, that you can get from producing hydrogen, green hydrogen, which is hydrogen produced from renewable sources like solar or wind. It's a $3 per per kilogram credit. Let's note that the amount of energy in a kilogram of hydrogen and a gallon of diesel is pretty much the same. So a $3 credit essentially moves the price of hydrogen about $3 closer to what keeps referring to as diesel parity. Do you view the IRA as being as much of a game changer as certainly what I heard down at Sierra Week?
1: Oh, it absolutely is. I can't deny that uh, this this legislation has really – incentivized investment in new generations of technology like hydrogen and also spurned a lot of private investment. We've seen uh, many of our members, uh, manufacturers out there uh, taking advantage of of some of those funding opportunities within IRA and looking at the the credits for the future. So um, it is definitely a game changer. I think that, um, you know, when you think about uh, technologies like hydrogen, the old joke used to be, and I've been in this business long enough where it's so it was kind of a regular thing that it was it was just around the corner, right it's it's right around the quarter and i would say today that you know we're closer to that corner than we've ever been because of the inflation reduction act and i think because of the technology and sort of the time that we're in so um i would not expect um that we will see great penetration of vehicles on the road with hydrogen in the next you know handful of years but you know Five plus ten years out, um, I think we'll we'll, we'll see some some good options out there for uh, for some trucking industry folks. Um, when you look at the if you look at hydrogen from the if you start at the engine side um, or the fuel cell side, depending on what your pleasure is, um, hydrogen is a an interesting fuel that could be used for internal combustion engines as well. And I think that uh, some of the manufacturers you see that uh, that that happening now with new fuel agnostic platforms where. You're making uh, an engine platform that can burn any manner of fuels. It can diesel. It can be outfitted to run natural gas. It can be outfitted to run hydrogen. And I think that kind of reflects the diversification that that manufacturers expect to take place in the next, you know, ten fifteen years. That, gosh, you know, for the bulk of the industry, diesel still going to be the the reliable thing that you turn to every day. But for many companies that have the opportunity and the capability. They might be experimenting with something else and indeed maybe starting to pivot more that way if and if only and if all the conditions are right. And there's a lot of conditions that have to come together to make that case.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point that you make. Now, you are, your diesel technology form is funded primarily by engine manufacturers or component manufacturers that deal with diesel engines. So they can be, as you mentioned, the word agnostic. Ultimately, in the long run, they can be agnostic. If there's a move toward hydrogen, they can simply take a. And that's, it's not simple. I'll take that word back. Simply, uh, they can take that that uh, that internal combustion engine and re-engineer it so that it burns hydrogen. So this is not necessarily a threat to, let's say, your members, the people who fund the Diesel Technology Forum. Correct.
1: Well, let's. I mean, let's be clear. I think you know we look at this as that we are all on the decarbonization team, right? that getting to meet our global climate objectives is not going to be done by one single technology, whether it's battery, electric, hydrogen, diesel, natural gas, anything else. It's just not going to happen. And so that's why you need all these different strategies to step up their game and to do more. And for some of the new technologies, they might hold greater promise years out. But for the current time, um, there's a lot of limitations there. And I would say that what our members are doing is to invest in all of those technologies. And I think there's a realization that diesel is still going to be the main power plant for a good long time. And it's going to be the thing ultimately that helps fund a lot of the investments and research necessary to make some of these new technology uh, engines and fuels out there. So, um, you know, diesel is going to be uh, around for that purpose if, if, uh, you know, if if for nothing else is to help you know support the investment and growth in, in some of the other technologies. But you know, if you look at at the evolution of, of diesel where we are today in the next 10 years, we've got new regulations that are pushing diesel harder to be even closer to zero emissions. We've got new regulations that'll be proposed sometime in the very near future that will make more efficient diesel engines and trucks in the next next round, so to speak. So, come the end of this decade, let's say twenty thirty, the diesel engines that we see on the street at that time, the new technology, will be more efficient, even closer to zero emissions, and we'll also, I think, see greater penetration of renewable biofuels throughout the industry, because that's a that's kind of the um, one of the hidden options here that really is uh, it needs to be discussed more.
0: Right, let, let, we'll get to that, but I, I do want to. Talk about like the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that's California. Uh, you talk about the federal government and having tighter emission standards. And meanwhile, you've got California out there, which is the world's fifth or sixth largest economy. And they have very aggressive timeline. And they are really were talking about – I mean, I've, I've read the regulations several different ways. It can be confusing. Uh, but really, pretty much no more diesel engines. After 2036, 2040, again, depending on how you read the regulation, but you know within a relatively reasonable amount of time, the danger always, I think, for the manufacturers is that they don't want to make what amounts to two cars, two trucks. You know, One truck for California, one for everybody else. Same thing with the cars. And what's happened over the years on a lot of regulatory things, I know it's happened in the fuels market, is that California tends to win. And the, the manufacturers of whatever product it is Again, they don't want to make two models, so they make it all to meet California. California would speed this process up, wouldn't it, if, in fact, everybody kind of adopts what California is doing? Well, it's an interesting proposition. I would say that, you know, the
1: heavy-duty truck industry is very different than the light-duty vehicle manufacturers, right? So, you know, when you're selling 15, 16, 17 million cars in a year, um, if you have to produce a good number of those cars to achieve a California-only standard... You still have a huge population of non-California vehicles you can produce. While on the heavy truck side, you know when you're producing, you know what, three hundred thousand or so, the biggest class eight trucks on a year, um, and California tells you to do one thing. There's not a whole lot of additional, you know, return on investment opportunity there, given the typical market for diesel. So, uh, for or for heavy duty trucks, excuse me. So I think that um, you know California is is designed a program that suits what they believe their needs are but the trucking industry um is quite different than than california i say when you look at what the predominant nature of trucking is in the u.s um you know it's easy to be drawn in and say oh look at you know all the the opportunity out there all the fleets trying all the different alternative fuels in the west coast and so much funding and emphasis on infrastructure there Exactly. And I suspect it's, it's going to be a success at some level, if for no other reason than the amount of funding behind it. Um, but the rest of the country, well, let's think about the fact that um, over 90% of the trucking fleets out there are fleets of 20 or fewer trucks. And, you know, that's, that's a population that is uh, often overlooked here. We're often looking towards the, you know, the iconic fleets that are doing all these great investments and trying all these different technologies. And not really looking at some of the smaller ones. So, you know, California is definitely um, making a mark in the regulatory sense. Um, I think it works both ways, though, in terms of being, uh, you say, maybe positive for driving um, the manufacturers to one single standard that's a California standard. But, you know, where's the need for that, ultimately, in terms of tighter emission standards? I mean, California had 157 days in non-compliance with the ozone standard last year, or 2021, I guess it was. Um, the states in the Northeast that are now thinking about adopting California rules, like my home state here in Maryland, they violate the standard on just 15 days and at a far lower levels of, of ozone in the atmosphere. So, is is a California-type standard and program appropriate for the rest of the country? You know, I I don't think so. I think manufacturers want a harmonized national approach, is what they've always had up until the last decade or so when California started to move out on its own. And I think there's really an effort to try and find a way to get back to that. But it's going to be a compromise between where the feds are and and where California thinks it needs to be. And there's some key words in some of the California rules about flexibilities. And, you know, it's great to give press conferences and announcements and pronouncements that by 2045, you know, half of the investments, uh, they, they can't be any more fossil fuel investments out there, you know, provided that there's adequate ones available, you know. We're a long ways from that time frame. So you can say whatever you want for 15, 20 years from now, but nobody really knows how the infrastructure for all these other options will plan, pan out. So I think, you know, you need to keep all the options on the table. You need to keep making diesel cleaner, lower in emissions, more efficient, and all of that is happening. Um, and truckers are going to be in a, in a pickle in California. They're going to have, if you know, if they're used to having 10 powertrain options today, I would I would hazard a guess that this rulemaking will cut that down by eighty or ninety percent. So if you were to buy a new truck from California in the next you know handful of years when some of these rules start taking effect, um, there's going to be very limited choices, and that in itself I think is going to be an issue for the
0: industry. And you really get into the whole chicken and egg thing. I mean, if you've got all the incentives on hydrogen and you've got the rules in California, does that chicken create the egg of more vehicles? You know, when in, in all of their In all their literature, they quote the number of types of 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 hydrogen or ZEV trucks that are out there, Uh, but it's you know it's not the numbers are still the the numbers are higher than they really are in terms of going into a dealership and buying them. You know, I think one one thing you was going to ask before, but I think it's a relevant point is that you know you can talk about well, diesel's got a, a future and hydrogen's got a future, but is the capital there to fund? distribution systems for both i would question whether it is and this is why you you start to think that one is going to win out and with the government push completely behind hydrogen and other um, uh, cleaner burning vehicles if there's no capital for two systems then it kind of has to get back to one system and given that the government has planted its flag on zevs which in trucks means hydrogen how can it not win under that scenario
1: well it's a good you know it's an interesting perspective i guess how much of that hydrogen is going to actually come from renewable energy, right? I mean, that that's ultimately what's happening here. And I I worry a lot that what we're doing is playing an energy shell game. And we, we see this, you know, I think on a consistent thought process that, you know, first it was school buses. Okay. Well, let's, let's, you know, make school buses all electric and everybody's on that bandwagon. We understand why, um, makes good sense because of how they drive and, and many of the issues surrounding that. Um, well let's let's so when we dig into those arguments let's talk about where is the energy from that charging that electric school bus coming from today because all of the advocates that get out there and other stakeholders are saying well you know it's electric school buses have zero emissions and they don't qualify to zero tailpipe emissions so if you're operating a school bus in a state that's getting most of its energy from natural gas or coal you know we're really just trading one kind of emission for another right in in, this, in the in the quest to
0: make um, electric know but great. I just let in- to just interrupt to, to, to your point. I've always kind of viewed it this way. Yes, if it's coming from coal, it's a disaster, okay? If it's coming from oil now, let's say in a, in a, in a school bus that's uh, running on, on diesel. Do, do most school buses run on diesel or gasoline? Uh, to be honest, I really don't know. Do they, don't? Okay. they do. It's if it's running on natural gas, maybe it's not as clean as, let's say, wind producing hydrogen that then goes into a fuel cell, but it certainly is cleaner than coal. And certainly is cleaner than oil, so maybe it's a gradualism. No,
1: I, absolutely, I don't think any of these things are, are, you know, drop off the shelf kind of curves where all of a sudden you have a pivot and everything goes away. That's in one space, and the new space takes over. No way. Um, I think you know when you have things like the Inflation Reduction Act and others that come along with a big amount of funding, you can certainly you know tilt the momentum towards the alternative, but. Let's not forget about the, you know, literally hundreds of thousands or millions of existing vehicles and engines and equipment out there on the road today. Uh, What's going to happen to them? Are they going to change completely overnight? So to your point about whether or not the infrastructure is going to continue to be supported for diesel, um, I don't know how that could possibly change and we can continue the quality of life we have today. If if that were to be the case that, you know, all of a sudden we we would rely on something different. Um, I just don't see that happening, and I think that um, you know manufacturers are, are are realistic as well. I mean, you know, for example, I think President Biden was at the a Cummins facility yesterday talking about uh, uh, American manufacturing and jobs, and, and Cummins announced also um, some some new business there with their electrolyzer, which is great. Um, they're a leader in the power generation world, and this is uh, another you know feather in their cap. Um, they also announced some new investments in some of their fuel-agnostic engine platforms, uh, including diesel. Um, so uh, we see that you know folks are playing smart here. Like you know, what do we need to have today, and what are we thinking about might be successful in the future? So let's let's keep investing in both, and uh, we'll we'll see how it plans out. And I think you know, there's just so many so many issues there for um, moving away from diesel in any time quickly that um, it it just doesn't passed the red face test for me. I think if you talk to fleets, let's say let's say we just went to folks and say, you've got to reduce your carbon emissions by, let's pick a number, by 50% in the next 10 years. Here's 10 choices on how to do it. You figure it out and sign up for the right one that works for you. Some will take electric, some might go hydrogen. Um, some will choose to use 100% renewable biofuels. So they have the, the the most immediate impact on reducing climate emissions. And I think that's one of the things that we're overlooking in this discussion, which is hydrogen might be great, it might be the thing that that tips away from diesel, but if it's 15 or 20 years out at scale, what does that mean for climate and emissions between now and then? You can't just walk away from continued investments in internal combustion engines like diesel and natural gas. You need to keep supporting those so you can keep putting, you know, I would say, clean air and climate credits in the bank for reducing carbon emissions and doing that also with renewable fuels you know goes a long way if we have a fleet today that starts using 100% renewable diesel they're cutting their carbon emissions tomorrow by over 80% and yeah hydrogen might cut them by 99% 15 years from now but what happens in the intervening period so i think we have to have you know more we have to have more realistic uh, views on what this energy transition might look like and how the choices are going to pan out, and know that we're not going to see any f- switches flipped overnight. It's uh, as you suggest a very tr- gradual transition to new options coming on.
0: Last question: We don't have a lot of time. We could go on forever, Al. Let's face it. Um, how confident are you in the supply of renewable diesel? I mean, this has become this is starting to become an issue. Uh, the, you know, the, the feedstocks are not endless. There is a I'd say limited amount of feedstocks because you can always generate more, but how confident do you feel that the feedstocks to make a could supply renewable diesel and to make it part of the decarbonization of the trucking fleet are going to be there?
1: Yeah, that's, it's a legitimate question, but I think you know what we're seeing in the industry is major investments by traditional petroleum refiners that are putting up new facilities to produce renewable diesel that's going to be able to turn out the kind of volumes that they anticipate needing. Um, I think um, Farm Bill is up for consideration in Congress this year. There's a number of provisions in there that get into cover crops and other things that might provide some more feedstock availability, um, and so there's that link as well. So I think that you know in in uh, the other thing that's that's happening is folks are taking a more nuanced view of biofuels instead of 100 percent renewable diesel or um, you know 20 percent biodiesel and 80 uh, percent conventional diesel. What would happen if we had you know 7 percent biodiesel? Four percent renewable diesel, and I'm just making these numbers up, you know, and 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 other. So some of these novel blends that extend the the reach of the biodiesel low carbon feedstock, I think, are of great interest now. And I know that manufacturers, in particular, are really looking at that um, as well, because those all have impacts on greenhouse gas emissions and other emissions. And so you could easily see that um, coming in the future. You could have some really customized blends. Of renewable biofuels available for fleets that choose to use those in different parts of the country, you could you could tailor a particular blend that might meet the specific needs in that particular area. So um, I think there's a lot of excitement there. You're right, feedstocks are an issue, but I think industry is working that just as hard as the folks are working on the
0: hydrogen side. Alan, we're going to have to have you back. I don't think this issue is going away anytime soon. <laughs> I think not. Well, hey, we want to thank Alan Schaefer. He is the executive director at the Diesel Technology Forum for talking to us today about diesel versus hydrogen versus whatever else. It's a long-running, I wouldn't call it a debate, but it's a long-running trend and and progress in the trucking industry that uh, Alan's group is going to be at the forefront of dealing with. So thanks, and come again, Alan, please. Thank you, John. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from FreightWaves. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, I'm your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.